0: Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Russ Kennel tells us if he thinks value strategies will keep their momentum. Megan Patrilock fills us in on a strategy gaining popularity. Ed Slot discusses charitable contributions and tax returns, and Christine Ben shares her to-do list for April. Let's get started. Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. and Russ Kinnell from Morningstar Research Services discuss the comeback of value investing.
1: I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. After lagging growth stocks by significant margins for several years, value strategies are in the middle of a comeback. But is that comeback here to stay? Joining me today to discuss the topic is Russ Kinnell. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hi, Russ. Thanks for being here today. Glad to be here. So, when did the tide start to turn for value strategies and what drove that change?
2: Yeah, you know, at first it was kind of subtle because it, it started in September when the market was selling off. And so, at first, value was simply losing less than growth. And we saw that again in October. And then in November, uh, the rally really kicked in uh, and value outperformed on the upside. And it's been doing that ever since.
1: So what sort of outperformance are we, are we really talking about here of, of value over growth? And is market capitalization playing any role?
2: Uh, yeah, so to answer your, your, your market cap question first, uh, small caps have done much better than large caps, uh, really dramatically so. Uh, really the whole rally is driven by uh, a stronger than expected economic recovery, partly based on vaccines, partly uh, on stimulus. Uh, And so small caps tend to be more economically sensitive, value tends to be more so. So small caps have done better, Uh, values done much better than growth. So for instance, if we go from September through the middle of March, large values gained about 24% versus 8% for large growth. Uh, In small caps, values won uh, about 51% versus 32% uh, from that same uh, September to March timeframe.
1: So there are there any particular value funds that have done, say, surprisingly well during this period, and what's been driving their performance?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, especially if you look from somewhere close towards uh, the, the the bottom, uh, it's really remarkable. Uh, Royce Opportunity is a fund that, believe it or not, is up 150% uh, for the trailing one year through March 15th. Uh, Dodge and Cox stock is up 69%, which is also... Uh, very good for a large value fund. Uh, one theme to both of them is they both tend to have uh, more tech um, than the typical value fund uh, but also they have a lot of financials and other economically sensitive stocks that have really done well. So uh, some of the company some of the funds that might have looked like dogs a few months ago uh, now they look like champs and it really underscores just how these corrections can be violent but so can the rebound.
1: So the the million dollar question here, Russ, do you really think value strategies are going to be able to maintain this momentum and continue these winning ways?
2: Uh, it's always a hard call. So, so I wouldn't uh, uh, bet, bet my, my house on it. But uh, if you look, uh, value is still behind growth if you go back to say uh, the beginning of February, 2020, when uh, COVID was starting to, to hit the world. And, and then obviously, if you go back further, trailing three, five, and 10 years, growth is still ahead of value. So that would seem to imply that value could have more to run. And certainly uh, in in market history, generally that's the way it works is uh, you have one, you tend to overdo it. So we overdid the growth rally, maybe we'll overdo the value rally now.
1: So, if an investor's looking at his or her portfolio and they find that they might be a little light on value, and, and they might be because, as you pointed out, growth, still, if you look over time, you know, longer time periods, has been outperforming. Are there any particular funds that you like?
2: Sure, there, there's plenty. 2 I'll mention uh, Tiro Price Mid Cap Value is a really good uh, fund run by David Wallach, uh, very much a, a, a dedicated value fund. So, you're not going to see a lot of fast growing tech names in there. but a very good fund that reopened in 2020 uh in the large cap space i like uh Yachman fund is a fund that uh is value focused but also quality focused you know a little of that sort of warren buffett influence of better to pay up for a a, a little better company than to find the absolute cheapest company uh those are two of the more appealing value funds out there
1: Well, Russ, thank you so much today for putting the value uh, rally in perspective for us and, and for your fund ideas. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in.
0: Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Megan Patchalock from Morningstar Research Services talks about target date blend funds.
1: Hi, I'm Susan Chabinski with Morningstar. Morningstar recently published its annual target date landscape report for 2021, and blended strategies are gaining traction. Joining me today to talk about what these strategies are, and to talk a little bit about two of our favorites, is Megan Patchalock. Megan is the co-author of the study, and she is also an analyst with Morningstar's multi-asset team. Hi, Megan. Thanks for being here today. Hi Susan. Thanks for having me. So let's start out with a basic definition. What are these blended strategies?
3: So a blend strategy is really one that utilizes both passive and active underlying funds together. There is no hard rule as to how to blend them together or how much to use, but we've used, um, we've categorized those that have between 30 and 70 percent active exposure, while they're remaining in passive exposure, to be considered blend.
1: Now, why are some asset managers pursuing blended strategies with their target date vehicles?
3: It's not uncommon for a target date provider to offer more than one series. Historically, we have seen them offer an active-only option or an index-only option. Blend really allows them to have a middle-of-the-road option that stays competitive on fees while also not giving up all of their active manager exposure.
1: So what, what do investors think of these blended strategies? You know, are they taking in more assets or, or, or getting more traction than say the all active approach or the all index approaches?
3: We've actually seen them gain in popularity in more recent years. Um, and we think it's coming from the active only space. Um, for instance, um, if we take 2020, three of the top 10 seri- target date funds that experienced inflows were blend strategies whereas only one was an active-only option. So Megan, what are the benefits to investors of these blended approaches? So there are two major benefits to, the, to a blend approach, the first being fees. Um, the cost is a crucial consideration when it comes to selecting a target date fund. And having a blend approach, um, since they do incorporate additional passive investments compared to those active onlys, it gives them a bit of a price advantage. Um, The second one being it hangs on to some exposure to active managers, so they have a higher potential of outperforming an index only option.
1: Now, there are a couple of target date series that pursue these blended approaches that we award uh, a gold rating to. Uh, The first being JP Morgan Smart Retirement Blend. Tell us a little bit about that vehicle and those vehicles in particular.
3: So, J.P. Morgan Smart Retirement Blend was actually one of the first blend strategies to come to market as a mutual fund. What we like about them is that they continue to use active managers where they have a higher conviction in them, such as emerging markets, equities, but then they go to those low-cost options in more efficient markets, such as U.S. large caps. This series also benefits from a well-established tactical approach that has added value over the long term.
1: And another gold-rated uh, series is um, that's also pursuing a blended strategy is Pimco Real Path Blend. Tell us a little bit about that one.
3: Right. So Pimco Real Path Blend does a really great job of balancing its passive and active exposures. Um, for instance. Its equity exposure is all through low-cost Vanguard index funds, whereas its fixed income allocation comes from all active in-house bond funds. And we view PIMCO as one of the better bond managers. In 2019, PIMCO appointed Erin Brown as the lead portfolio manager of this series. She brings with her a wealth of knowledge on asset allocation. We think her background, paired with the firm's well-established investment committee, sets this series up for long-term potential.
1: Megan, thank you so much for your time today, walking us through these blended approaches. They sound like really compelling options for investors to consider. We appreciate your time.
3: Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan
1: Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in.
0: Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com Alexa. Next, here is tax and retirement expert Ed Slott with Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. Hi,
4: I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. With most taxpayers claiming the standard deduction, that means they don't receive credit for charitable giving on their tax returns. Joining me to discuss some charitable giving strategies is Ed Slott. He's a tax and retirement expert, and he's also the author of a new book called The New Retirement Savings Time Bomb. Ed, thank you so much for being here.
5: Thanks for having me back. Great to be back. Thank you.
4: It's great to have you here, Ed. So a big percentage of the population now takes the standard deduction versus itemizing their deductions. So does that mean that for most taxpayers, tax-wise, their charitable contributions really don't benefit them on their tax return?
5: Well, I always like to say they don't get a tax benefit. The benefit is giving to the charity. But you want the government to give you a little bonus with that. Uh, most people are not getting a tax benefit, exactly as you said on their tax return, because most people don't itemize deductions like they used to years ago. The uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, increased the standard deduction. So I think the numbers, I don't know if you have the uh, numbers, but last I heard about 90% of people are taking the standard deduction. So they're not getting any tax benefit of the funds they continue to give to charities.
4: The CARES Act did include a small deduction available for non-itemizers. Can you talk about that?
5: Yes. For 2020, the tax returns you're preparing now in 2021, anybody who didn't itemize can can deduct cash gifts of $300 per return. So if you're married filing joint, it's still $300. You don't get double. Just a note, next year that would go up to $600. They fixed that one the deduction for 2020 is a deduction what accountants like to call above the line. It reduces adjusted gross income. That's an important number on the tax return because that's the number that determines what other items might be taxed and what other benefits, deductions, and credits you can claim. So you want to reduce that number. Next year, Congress changed it. Uh, Next year, Congress said You can get the 300 and 600 on a joint return. That's for 21, not 22. So they went up to the 600 for 21 taxes that you'll be doing next year. But the deduction no longer reduces adjusted gross income; it reduces taxable income. The benefit of reducing adjusted gross income it keeps your income lower, so things like the tax on Social Security or the Medicare Parts B and D surcharges and other items that are based on levels of income.
4: So this deduction, you can't use it in hand-in-hand hand
5: with a, um, a donor-advised fund. Is that no, right? No, it has to be a direct cash contribution. Okay. It can't okay. be we're giving it somebody to give to somebody else.
4: Okay. wanted to talk about the uh, qualified charitable distribution that's available for people over age 70 and a half. I guess a question is, if someone is over age 70 and a half and has IRA assets, should they be contributing to charity in any other way?
5: Absolutely. Now, I'm not saying people should contribute to charity. If you're charitably inclined, I would never say to give your money away for tax reasons. If I were to say that, So give all your money away and you'll never pay taxes. No, I'm saying if you get whatever you're giving anyway, if you qualify for a QCD, a qualified charitable distribution, that's the way to give, that's the fix that fixes that problem. The problem with the QCD, the only problem, not enough people qualify. The only people that qualify are IRA owners, not 401ks, IRA owners and IRA beneficiaries who are 70 and a half years old or older. You must be 70 and a half. For example, if you're watching this now, if you turn 70 and a half tomorrow, you don't qualify today. It's not like these other provisions where during the year, you have to be 70 and a half. If you qualify, you can transfer whatever amount you want to give to charity, you can transfer directly from your IRA to your charity. IRA funds are the best, funds to give to charity because they're loaded with tax and it's excluded from income, reducing again, adjusted gross income. And if you time it right, you can offset your required minimum distribution that those generally start at 72. So you have this little gap now because the SECURE Act increased the RMD age for acquired minimum distributions from 70 and a half to 72. But the QCD age, I feel like I'm talking in acronyms and other language, the QCD age stayed at 70 and a half. So you have a gap from 70 and a half to 72 for people that fit in there that some people might say, well, I won't do it till I can offset RMD income. No, use it now if you qualify. If you're giving to charity anyway, you will get a tax benefit that you otherwise wouldn't. Let me give you an example. Let's say you normally give 10000 to charity. Now you get no tax benefit for it because you're taking the standard deduction. If you do the giving this way, and let's say you're in a 24% bracket, just to throw that out, you will save 24% of the 10000 or $2,400 in tax just by making the same gift this way. So now you're not only getting the larger standard deduction, but you're also getting better than an itemized deduction. You're getting an exclusion from income, reducing AGI. So that's even better than a deduction. So you do get the benefit back and you're able to draw down IRA funds that would normally be taxable as ordinary income. That The funds that go to charity are excluded from income. So you're getting money out of the IRA at zero tax. That's always a good move.
4: So if someone is watching and they are well under 70 and a half or not there yet, do you have any thoughts on how people at that life stage can earn a tax benefit for charitable contributions that they'd like to make?
5: Well, if you're giving a lot of money and you don't qualify for the QCD, either because you don't have an IRA or you're not 70 and a half yet, and you wanna make large gifts, large enough that you would be able to itemize The recent tax rules have eliminated the percentage limitation. In the past, you you could only give away, if you were making a a good chunk of gifts, Uh, you could only give up to 50 or 60% of change to uh, of your adjusted gross income. Now you see why that number is important. Well, that's all gone. Now for cash gifts, you can give up to a hundred percent of your adjusted gross income. So if you're making big gifts, you can do it that way. Another thing you can do is gift highly appreciated property. Let's say you have stock you want to give. Normally, if you sold that stock, you'd pay a big capital gains tax. You can give that stock to the charity. You don't pay the capital gains tax, and you get a deduction for the full fair market value of that as long as you held it for a year. So there's a couple of ways you can still get big gift deductions, but it would have to be big enough that it exceeded what you would have uh, received with a standard deduction. So it'd have to be big enough to allow you to itemize when you add in your other itemized deductions.
4: Would that strategy of bunching charitable contributions potentially make sense in this context
5: too? Yeah, if you can put them all in one year, say this year, where all of a sudden your itemized deductions skyrocket, then you can have a big benefit. And you do that every few years.
4: Ed, it's always great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz.
0: And lastly, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski encourage investors to get organized in April.
1: I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, has created a month-by-month financial to-do list for 2021. She's here with us today to talk a little bit about what should be on that list for April. Hi, Christine. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Susan. Great to be here. So you say that April is a really good time for us to get organized, specifically to focus on organizing our financial records. Why is April generally a good month for that?
4: Well, it's usually a time of year, Susan, when we're in the midst of tax season. And now I guess we have the filing deadline pushed forward a little bit into May. But nonetheless, most of us are spending time with our financial records. We I think are cognizant of what the shortcomings of our record keeping systems might be. We might have spent more time than we wanted to trying to unearth the documents that we were looking for to file our tax return. So I think it's a good time to think about getting organized when the pain of pulling your tax information together is still fresh.
1: Now you say one of the first steps we should be taking is taking a look at what sort of documents and records that our financial providers offer. What's the goal there? Well, the goal is to
4: see how um, and what type of records your financial providers are saving on your behalf. And chances are, if you deal with one of the big investment shops, you'll be surprised at the breadth of record keeping that they've been doing for you. And I think it, for a lot of us, it's a good impetus to go paperless because it's more secure to not be having these financial documents passing through the mail. Ideally, you would uh, receive them from your provider, that you'd retrieve them from your provider's website. So spend some time getting comfortable with what your provider has on offer, and also make sure that your own security systems for your computer are up to snuff. So if you'll be retrieving your records electronically, you want to make sure that all of your antivirus software is up to date and everything else that that your computer is equipped to
1: navigate and, and keep that information secure. So what documents should we be saving, whether we save that as a hard copy or we save that electronically?
4: Well, you'd wanna be thinking about, first and foremost, very hard to replace documents. Uh, So your wedding certificates, birth certificates, articles of incorporation, things that would be a big pain to replace if you needed to. Those are things that you either wanna keep in a safe deposit box at a bank, or in some sort of a fireproof box in your home where you keep it under lock and key. Um, those would be the very hard to replace documents. Then for the other documents um, like your 1099s for example, or your trade confirmations, I think it's reasonable to either rely on your provider to store those records for you or you can make maintain some backup records on your own computer, maybe a combination for most people. The other stuff, I would say, um, generally people oversave, so they save, prospectuses and they save annual reports, none of that is essential. All of that can be readily retrieved in a pinch.
1: What about tax documents? How long do we need to save our taxes? Well, the answer is it depends. And for
4: most people, it's anywhere from three to seven years depending on your situation. I would say for people who want to be safe, if you can save the past seven years worth of tax returns that will cover you in any number of situations, that's probably just a, a good, better, safe than sorry sort of benchmark to use.
1: And what about planning documents? You know, people wrestle with what, you know, where do I keep those? Where's the best place? What do you recommend?
4: Right. Estate planning documents, you can really hang a lot of people up. And there are a few different ways to go about this. One thing that people sometimes do is put them in a safe deposit box. And that's fine if you take that next step of letting your executor or your close loved ones know where they can gain access to that information if they need it. Um, so a safe deposit box may be one option provided that you go that next step and and give the party access to the to the box if they need to. You could also keep the estate planning documents at your attorney's office. Some attorneys don't want the liability of holding those documents, but that's another option potentially for some people. Another idea is to hand the documents over to your executor who will be handling your affairs if uh, needed. And so The nice thing about doing that is that you can spend some time with your executor, with the person that you've granted powers of attorney to going through some of the things, some of the considerations that went into your estate plan. If you decide to keep the document at home, you just want to make sure that you keep it in a safe place. You want to make sure that it's not readily accessible to others, but that your loved ones know where they can access it in a pinch.
1: Now, speaking of estate planning documents, you're a big believer in creating a master directory. In fact, you're such a big believer in it that you made it one of our to-dos for April. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what a master directory is and why it's so important?
4: Right. I'm a big believer in this document, Susan, and we have a template for creating a master directory on Morningstar.com that people can turn to. The basic idea is that it's a document that outlines the basic contours of your financial plan. So you're giving information on what accounts you have and with which providers. You're providing detail on any financial professionals that you deal with, whether you're CPA or your financial advisor or your estate planning attorney. Uh, So you're preparing that all in a document. And because you have a lot of sensitive information in this document, you have account numbers and so forth, you want to take that extra step of making that document safe, either encrypting it if it's an electronic document, or if it's a physical document, making sure that you have it under lock and key, either in your home fireproof box, or in a safe deposit box offsite. You have a lot of sensitive information here, so you really do want to make sure that it's secure.
1: Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time today and for giving us some financial marching orders for April. We appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in.
0: That does it for this week's Investing Insights Podcast for Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal.